If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Take something iconic like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Underground Railroad was a resistance network of activists and abolitionists. Using secret routes and safe houses, they helped enslaved people to flee north from the domestic slave trade in the American South in the mid-19th century. But how did the term Underground Railroad actually come about? In today's episode, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist Scott Shane introduces us to Thomas Smallwood, a formerly enslaved man who helped hundreds to flee, and also left a cache of satirical and subversive letters that shed light on the famous name. He spoke to Eleanor Evans. Scott, thank you so much for joining me on the History Extra podcast. Can we start with an introduction to Thomas Smallwood, a man whose story is at the centre of your book? Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. So Thomas Smallwood, and I think probably very few, if anyone in your audience has, has ever heard of Thomas Smallwood, was born into slavery in 1801, just outside Washington, D.C., You know, in a nutshell, he bought his own freedom by the age of 30. He set up shop as a shoemaker. 
He married and began a family. And at some point in there, he decided, as he put it once, to wage his own personal war on slavery and began organizing the escape of people who were enslaved in Washington, D.C., in the surrounding area, the counties in Maryland that surround Washington. And uh, he worked hard at this and at enormous risk for about two years. And at the same time, really kind of remarkably, when you think about this man with, with a bunch of kids and a, a, a busy profession, he managed to, to send off every week or two uh, dispatches to an abolitionist newspaper in Albany, which was on the escape route north, that recounted the escapes, which is, if not unique, extremely rare to have real-time uh, accounts of, of escapes from slavery. And also, there's sort of a, uh, they add up to a, in my mind, to a kind of a satirical masterpiece aimed essentially at um, mocking the slaveholders and their uh, the whole sort of slave society, the slave catchers, the police who made a lot of money catching slaves on the side, and uh, ennobling the enslaved and those who were escaping. Uh, so it's really sort of a, a rare and extraordinary collection of published letters from that same period of time. So he's sort of on the one hand quite the activist, and on the other hand, you know, a bit of a sort of self-made literary figure. Okay, thank you. A great introduction to um, Smallwood there. I wonder if we can pause on his story just a second, and I can ask you to, for a reminder to perhaps situate us on the distinctness of the domestic slave trade in America at this time, because some people might be familiar with the transatlantic aspect of that, but by the 19th century, it had changed into something very different, hadn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And that's one of the things that drew me initially to this subject. I live in Baltimore, Maryland, and I discovered at some point in the 1990s, after living here for quite a few years, that Baltimore had been a center of the domestic slave trade, and that around Baltimore's inner harbor, there had been a bunch of domestic slave traders set up in business. And the uh, basically, the, the domestic slave trade, as distinct from the African trade or the international trade, uh, arose after 1808 when the uh, international trade, the African trade, had been banned by an act of Congress so that it was no longer uh, legal to import laborers from Africa, as had been done for, for many, many years. So that was a bit of a, a dilemma for especially planters in the Deep South because this was a period right after Eli Whitney had invented the cotton gin, and it became much easier to remove the seeds from cotton and process the cotton. So all of a sudden, you could grow much more cotton, and there was an enormous international market in England for, for uh, American cotton. And so there was a desperate need for labor in the Deep South, in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and at the same time, the tobacco, cultivation of tobacco in the mid-Atlantic was on the decline. Tobacco kind of wears out the soil, and so less and less tobacco was being grown. And farmers were switching from tobacco to grain in the uh, kind of the upper south, Maryland, Virginia, 
And tobacco, like cotton, requires an enormous workforce, but grain does not. So all of a sudden, there was a surplus of enslaved labor, of labor in general, in the Upper South, an enormous demand for it in the Lower South. And that, quite predictably, created a, a huge market. And so between about 1810 and the Civil War in the 1860s, somewhere around one million people were forced south, uh, some of them relocating when their slaveholders relocated to the Deep South, but most of them sold in this domestic slave trade. When there were middlemen, operators, a lot of people got very rich that way, including one of my characters, the leading slave trader of the period I'm writing about, the 1840s, which uh, a fellow named Hope Slatter. And he operated from Baltimore's Harbor, accumulating people in a private jail near the harbor. And then when he had sort of had a shipload, he would ship them by sea south to New Orleans, where they would be displayed in what uh, was kind of horribly called a showroom and, uh, and sold to the highest bidder. It's a horrific number, a horrific forced um, movement of, of enslaved people. I wonder if we can go a little bit more into, I know we're talking about a huge group here, but that in broadest terms, what this meant for families, for, for couples, you know, for people who were enslaved. Can you talk to that a little bit? So, you know, this was just crass commerce with any kind of human considerations left out of it. There were many points along the way when families were separated, often at the very beginning. So, you know, the slave trader's agent who would travel around a state like Maryland, knocking on the doors of, of farmers and slaveholders and say, do you have anyone to sell? And, you know, depending on the need for labor, depending on prices, dep depending on the slaveholder's need for cash, uh, they might say, yes, you know, I'll sell you this woman and this teenage boy, and, you know, just ignore the fact that the woman was married to someone who was not being sold, the teenage boy was being separated from parents. So, uh, and, and if families were not separated at that stage, they were often separated on the southern end, in a place like New Orleans, where even if, uh, say, a husband and wife were sold together and arrived in New Orleans together, one planter might buy the woman and another planter far away might buy the man. And of course, this is in a time when those kinds of separations were likely to be forever. And so everybody who was enslaved in the Upper South uh, had to live every day with the knowledge that they could, you know, that day, the next day, the next week, suddenly be told they were being sold, you know, shackled up and carted away and never see their family again. And one of the things that sort of, that, that I kind of came to realize in writing this book and it and ended up being a major theme of the book is that something I'd never really understood was that many of the people who escaped the North were motivated to do that because they either got word or suspected that they might be about to be sold south. And, you know, it's quite a harrowing 
risky thing to try to run. And, you know, what would persuade some people to take that chance is the knowledge that if they didn't take that chance, they might find themselves on a boat to New Orleans away from everybody, everything they knew and everybody they loved. So, you know, ultimately I realized that there were these two movements of people, one people escaping north by what came to be called the Underground Railroad, and the other, you know, in much, uh, alas, larger numbers being sold south. You know, I guess the other factor, too, is that uh, for some people in the Upper South, especially people in urban areas who were enslaved in urban areas like Baltimore or Washington, they enjoyed a kind of autonomy and freedom in many cases that would be completely absent on a, a, a cotton plantation or a sugar plantation in the Deep South. For example, if you were enslaved in Baltimore, you might uh, be sent to the market to do the, do the shopping. You might be asked to accompany the children to school. To be useful in that kind of urban setting, you were often given a certain amount of uh, freedom. Also, it was much more common in a city for an enslaved person to be uh, hired out, meaning, you know, it was it was nothing like um, you know free labor, but they were sent to work for somebody else, somebody other than their uh, their owner, and the owner would basically collect their wages. But that also gave them a certain amount of of room to operate. And in the deep south, you know, these were more factory farms where the workers were interchangeable. And especially in the sugar trade, the work was extremely dangerous and people did not always live very long. So, you know, often, depending on the person's circumstance, not only might they be separated from their family, but they might be thrown into a very, very different way of life in the Deep South. And so there was every reason for them to fear that. And it was even if... You know, many of these sales uh, took place more or less spontaneously. The term the enslavers used was to put someone in their pocket. If the enslaver was unhappy with one of his enslaved workers, he might say, you better work faster or I'll put you in my pocket. By what she, which he meant, just send a note to the local slave trader and have the person carted away and collect the cash. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. 
talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. A lot of very harrowing realities there, and it's among these realities that um, we might return to Thomas Smallwood. How is he operating in this world? Thomas Smallwood basically educated himself. He was he was fortunate, as he, you know, was the first to say, in the person who happened to enslave him, who was the husband of a woman who had inherited him and his sister, again, right outside Washington, D.C. in Bladensburg, Maryland. And this was a, a minister named John Ferguson. And he was, you know, somewhat anti-slavery, I guess you could say, and wanted to free Thomas. But because of the uh, the intricacies of the will by which his wife had inherited this person, apparently she had children from an earlier marriage and they were part owners and so on. So anyway, he was not able to uh, outright free him. And also, I'm not sure he could have afforded to one thing for these slaveholders was the people they owned was in almost every case the bulk of their wealth. You know, I, I, I sort of roughly calculate that an enslaved person whose value on the market could vary, of course, by age, gender, physical condition, and so on. But roughly, you might say uh, an enslaved person was worth about as much as a house. So that gives you a a sort of perspective on the values. So anyway, he agreed when Thomas was 15 to free him by the age of 30, sell him to himself, essentially. And Thomas agreed to pay $500 over time. And so by just shortly after the age of 30, he had paid his full $500 and, and, uh, you know, was a free man. Now, free for African-Americans at the time in the 18... uh, You know, my book is set in the 1840s, early 1840s. Being free was not the same as being a free white person by any means. There was a lot of resistance in a slave society to the very idea that black people could be free, could live next door, could could walk around, could operate independently. And there are many, many laws that restricted their activities, you know, just to use one very simple one. In both Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, Maryland, there was a 10 p.m. curfew for all black people, free or enslaved. If they were caught on the street, they could be fined or whipped. So being free was not quite what we would imagine uh, it it to be. But uh, anyway, Thomas uh, 
as I mentioned, became a shoemaker. He had been uh, taught to read by his initial enslaver, this guy John Ferguson, and then he was apparently hired out to a Scottish immigrant who was uh, a schoolmaster, and the schoolmaster and his grown children did a lot, apparently, uh, uh, kind of reading between the lines of the fairly sparse account that Smallwood gives and that you can kind of glean from other sources. Uh, I think they probably did a lot to expand his education beyond mere literacy to a really kind of um, pretty uh, impressive knowledge uh, of literature, which in his memoir, uh, written many years later, Smallwood sort of flaunts at times, but he clearly knew he knew Dickens, he knew Shakespeare, he knew all the, all the sort of uh, classics of literature. So his initial involvement in politics or attraction to politics did relate to slavery, but it was around an issue called, or movement called colonization. And colonization was essentially organized by... Um, white people with some support from some segment of the free black population. And the idea was that African-Americans would uh, move to Africa or to some other place outside the United States where they, uh, you know, would start new lives, essentially. And, in you know, you can imagine looking around at the slave society in the United States how a uh, an enslaved black man like Thomas Smallwood might say, you know, that sounds pretty good. I'm interested in exploring that. And the American Colonization Society actually founded the Republic of Liberia in West Africa and began sending people to populate Liberia. Others went to other places in the Caribbean and in West Africa but as, as occurred to many people who, many black people who were initially involved in the colonization movement, like Smallwood, they kind of came to realize that the movement was supported by many white people, including many slaveholders and pro-slavery people. And it was a fundamentally racist movement whose real goal was to make sure there were either no free black people in America or no black people in America, period. And so he became quite uh, disillusioned with this movement and broke up with some black friends over their disagreement over colonization. And, you know, he was a busy guy trying to earn a living, trying just to, uh, to stay alive. But by about 1840, he appears to have spent several years thinking about how to combat slavery. And at that point, you know, I kind of think of him almost as a, uh, you know, something that's ready to combust and it needs a match. And the match arrived in the person of a younger white man named Charles Torrey, who moved to Washington. And uh, it just happened that Torrey, who ostensibly was going to be a newspaper correspondent writing for abolitionist newspapers and essentially covering Washington, covering Congress, covering the government for these abolitionist newspapers. He went on what was virtually his first assignment as a correspondent to Annapolis, Maryland, to cover a convention 
of slaveholders. And he, they tried to throw him out, and he ended up being arrested, and a mob threatened his life. And this was all written up in the newspapers. And Smallwood, who was following this stuff very closely, was quite fascinated by this uh, basically crazy white man who seemed to be, you know, seemed to have walked into the lion's den of slaveholders at this convention. Washington was a very small town at the time. And so it happened that this fellow, Charles Torrey, was staying in a, in a boarding house where Thomas Smallwood's wife, Elizabeth, did the laundry. And so he asked his wife, can you, you know, can you connect me to this guy, Torrey? And uh, so they, they met and they found, uh, despite their extremely different backgrounds, they found they had a lot in common First and foremost, the desire to take direct action against what they called in those days the slave power, which was sort of the generic term for the political power and economic power of the slave system. Can we go more into that partnership then between Smallwood and Torrey? What what was their dynamic? What did they come up with? What sort of tactics did they end up employing? So when Smallwood and Torrey meet, and boy, what I would give for the, you know, the video and audio of that meeting. It must have been really something. Smallwood was about 40. Tory was 28, I believe. And uh, so they're about a dozen years apart. Tory had gone to, um, uh, you know, basically a prestigious private school, private academy, and then to Yale. And so he had you know, essentially the the most prestigious education a person could have. Alas, he had then tried his hand at teaching and was an abject failure, and then tried his hand at preaching and was um, perhaps an even greater failure at preaching. But he'd been very caught up in the anti-slavery movement. So for a, a, a little while, he had been essentially proselytizing against slavery, being, going on the lecture circuit against slavery, and essentially was con- consumed. He he had a wife and two kids, but he was consumed by the anti-slavery movement. So he'd left his family behind in Massachusetts, moved to Washington. And uh, Smallwood, you know, was fairly well set in terms of his business as a shoemaker, his uh, his family, and you get the you get the picture that he was. Uh, he wanted more from life. You know, he'd kind of educated himself, and he saw slavery clearly as the great issue of, of the time in, in America. And uh, so the two of them, from these extremely different backgrounds, different races, different ages, different histories, they must have come together with like, well, you want to do something against slavery? Well, so do I. And I think the other thing that may have connected them is the abolition movement, which of course in Britain was uh, somewhat ahead of the American uh, abolition movement, in the U.S. was very much a sort of talk fest. There were many meetings and there were uh, local abolition societies that, that arose in the 1830s in, in virtually every town in the North. And people would get together and uh, share horror stories. And occasionally, people who had escaped slavery would come and tell their personal stories. But it was, you know, I guess I've come to think of it as a little bit 
self-indulgent in the sense that here you are in the North, far from the actual enslaved people, indulging one another, essentially, in this great release of outrage and anger. Um, And there was a lot of infighting, as there so often is in a political movement like this. There were rivalries and, and bitter debates over minor points. And actually, the, the person who had emerged as perhaps the leader in New England of the anti-slavery movement was William Lloyd Garrison. And perhaps the most familiar name to Americans in the whole abolition, the whole history of abolition. So Tory, as a young man, um, came to know Garrison and the people around him. And he was uh, one of the people who broke with Garrison and started a, uh, a political party called the Liberty Party. And they very much wanted to use the political system to defeat slavery. So they, they took a very different approach. But you do get the feeling that Smallwood, who had been engaged in years of debate over the colonization issue, and Tory, who had you know, been in years of debate uh, among Northern abolitionists, we're both sort of sick of it, you know, like, let's not talk anymore, let's do something. And so they uh, begin to look around for people who might want to escape. And I think two things set them apart from the way you, one might usually think of these kind of efforts to help people escape or, you know, use the so-called Underground Railroad. One is that they were not passive about this. They didn't wait until people came to them, though eventually Smallwood got quite the reputation in the black community, and uh, so people did start coming to him. But they were not, uh, they did not hesitate, Smallwood did not hesitate to approach people he knew who were in slavery and say, hey, how do you feel about running north? And, and the other thing they did that was uh, somewhat different was they tried to operate on something of a, of a mass scale, so they tried to uh, help people escape by the wagon load when they could. So there might be 10 people in a wagon, 15 people in a wagon, and so instead of just ones and twos, they were trying to sort of break people out of jail, so to speak, in, in much larger numbers. And they went to work, you know, in the, uh, in the beginning of 1842, and just uh, kept at it, organizing these wagon loads of people headed north and, uh, you know, operating, trying to operate in secret. But at the same time, Smallwood began writing these letters, which he signed with a pseudonym. So it was, you know, it was clandestine in a way. And, and this all got going in, in uh, early in 1842. So they are helping uh, many people escape north um, at massive personal risk to them as well. Obviously, this is illegal what they're doing, just to emphasise. Um, and you've mentioned the term Underground Railroad a couple of times. I think it's pretty familiar in, in history parlance these days. But what's Smallwood's connection to this term? Well, that was one of the most fascinating and really uh, rewarding discoveries that I made in writing this book and researching the book. I got these letters that Smallwood had published in the abolitionist newspaper in Albany, New York. Out of the, uh, they turned out uh, there was a large collection of this newspaper in a warehouse of the Boston Public Library. And they were kind of moldering away there. And uh, it was the middle of the pandemic, so it took a little doing. But eventually, they agreed to uh, 
dig out these newspapers and put them on microfilm. That surprised me a little bit. I was like, you know, that seemed a little outmoded. But anyway, I went to, after they got them on microfilm, I went to the Boston Public Library and downloaded them all onto a thumb drive and read many, many issues of this paper looking for Smallwood's letters, <clears throat> which I should say he signed with a uh, pseudonym he took from Charles Dickens. Dickens, the Pickwick Papers, was a huge bestseller in the English-speaking world at the time, and Smallwood was a big fan. So he took the name of Sam Weller, Samuel Weller, who was a character in the Pickwick Papers, and he called himself Sam Weller Jr., and that's how he signed these letters, because as you point out, these, the, uh, you know, to help someone escape slavery was a grave crime. And so these people were uh, risking long prison terms. And in Smallwood's case, because he was black, he was even risking, there were certainly uh, scenarios by which he could be re-enslaved as a result of being caught trying to help people escape. So the stakes were extremely high. Basically, it was life and death. So he wasn't signing these letters with his own name. Anyway, I was reading through these letters, and I came across a passage in which Smallwood is addressing, as he often did, the slaveholders whose walking property, as he put it, had walked off. And he often sort of mocked them by posing as uh, deeply sympathetic to their plight, you know, that they have lost the, their beloved servants and so on. And anyway, he, uh, he's talking about a particular man who had run away from a particular enslaver. And he, uh, he says he must have left by that underground railroad or steam balloon that the, uh, a police constable was talking about the other day. And so later he, he elaborates, and so there was a, a, a somewhat notorious police constable in Baltimore named John Zell. And like most cops at the time, he made probably most of his money chasing down people who had escaped slavery and returning them to their enslavers for uh, rewards that could be quite substantial, reward money. And so obviously he had a big stake in the idea of, of escapes and recaptures. And so apparently, according to Smallwood, he was overheard essentially in an exasperated state of mind, uh, saying he didn't understand how all these people were escaping overnight and he had no idea how they were getting away and he didn't know where they'd gone and he couldn't catch them. And he said they must be leaving by underground railroad or steam balloon. So that that there was no underground railroad at the time. There were railroads, but there was no underground railroad. There were no steam balloons. It was sort of an experimental technology they were fooling with. And so essentially it was essentially saying they must have been abducted by aliens. In other words, this is something that's impossible. And he's just using this as a way to say, I have no idea how these people are getting away. But of course, this delighted Thomas Smallwood because he was the one helping them get away. And the fact that this guy was so frustrated must have been delicious to hear. And so he was quite taken by this idea of the Underground Railroad, and he just started riffing on it in his, uh, in his letters. And he would advise the enslavers who were upset, who were putting ads in the newspaper saying, you know, please return my slaves. He'd advise them to apply at the office of the Underground Railroad in Washington, D.C., 
for word on you know the whereabouts of the, uh, of their missing people. Of course, there was no such office, and he appointed himself at one point the general agent of all the branches of the Underground Railroad. And so he was just having fun, basically, at the expense of the slaveholders. So when I came across this in Smallwood's letters, you know, I thought, it sounds like Smallwood essentially invented the notion of the Underground Railroad, you know, borrowing this uh, exasperated uh, outburst from this police officer and running with it. And I, you know, could this be? And, you know, why wouldn't, if that's the case, why don't I know it? And so, you know, I go to Wikipedia, I go to other places, and and it turns out that no one really knew the origin of that phrase or that name for escapes. There were a couple of theories that had been bouncing around for decades that placed the origin in the 1830s. But as many scholars had found, if you started looking more deeply into those stories, it turned out that they were really folklore and that they did not hold up under much scrutiny. So really, no one really knew. And so the amazing thing was, it was pretty clear that Smallwood had, in a sense, invented the Underground Railroad or certainly made it into the term that it became. And so, uh, you know, this would have been a sort of, you know, strong, educated guess if we were talking about 20 or 30 years ago. But now there are these uh, terrific databases of historic newspapers, historical newspapers. So, you know, there are very large collections now online uh, for a subscription of uh, 19th century newspapers. And so all you have to do is uh, go into those databases, and I use two of them, and look for the phrase Underground Railroad and when it first appears. And, of course, in the early uses, it's sometimes four words, Underground Railroad. Sometimes it's, one of them is hyphenated, so you have to try different variants. But in every case, you know, this, this abolitionist, abolitionist newspaper in Albany was too obscure to have actually appeared in these databases directly. But in the 19th century, uh, newspapers were constantly taking stories from, from each other and reprinting them. And so, in every case, the early uses in 1842, 1843, 1844, the early uses of Underground Railroad came from Smallwood's letters when they were reprinted in other papers. And, uh, and sometimes uh, Charles Torrey, who, after about eight months uh, working with Smallwood in Washington on these escapes, he went and became the editor of the paper in Albany. So he was out of the escape business directly. But he picked up on Smallwood's uh, you know, joke, big, basically joke about the Underground Railroad. So some of his writings that mention it from those years are also in the, uh, among the first uses. And then you see that within a year or two, it begins to be picked up in this kind of ironic joking style as a way to mock the slaveholders. But what I think was really fascinating to me was to realize that, uh, you know, eventually, after, well after the Civil War, well after the, uh, the period of slavery, and well into the 20th century, I think the Underground Railroad became celebrated, you know, quite justly, and the people who were associated with it became celebrated. And it has become a sort of revered 
almost institution, sort of informal institution of the slave period. And it's the good guys, essentially, the people who are helping people escape north. And what I kind of realized, I certainly kind of knew this, I suppose, was that the reason it became such a well-known phenomenon taught in schools in America for many years now is that it's a kinder, gentler way to talk about slavery. And crucially, it's a way to talk about good-hearted white people who helped people escape. And so I hate to be cynical, but I think it's justified. But uh, very few Americans really understand that there was a domestic slave trade on the scale that it operated and the reasons for it and the family separation that it involved, whereas virtually every American knows about the Underground Railroad. And that's because the Underground Railroad makes some white people look good. The the domestic slave trade has no uh, white heroes, to put it mildly. And so I think that's what I've kind of come to believe uh, determine the difference between those two things. But I think what was so fascinating was to find that this phenomenon that is used today, I mean, anywhere you go in the north, a northern city, you can ask around and people say, oh, yes, you know, there's my grandfather's house was used in, you know, by escaping slaves in the Underground Railroad. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's probably myth. But it is this comforting and revered kind of phenomenon. But it began, as it turned out, as the opposite of that, really. It was, a, it was a, a stick with which to beat the white enslavers. Uh, you know, it was just his Smallwood's uh, way, one more way, in which he could mock and uh, denigrate the slaveholders. So it was, uh, you know, really, really, really gratifying to find that Smallwood was responsible for that. Yes, it's a fascinating bit of history and, and the visual of, of Smallwood sort of hiding in, quote, plain sight and, and using details of the slaveholders against them in this public satirical way is, is extremely gratifying. But to pick up on the phenomenon you just mentioned of, of how people perceive the Underground Railroad, how has that phenomenon shaped how Torrey and Smallwood have been remembered respectively, do you think? Yeah, I mean, once again... Racism pervades, you know, American history and is such a determining factor in so many areas. So the way I came across Smallwood was that I had picked up, as I looked around for essentially a story to tell that would allow me to explore the domestic slave trade was how I really started. And I had come across the fact that a man named Charles Torrey had, I hate to give away anything from the story, but had died in a Baltimore prison. And that he was an abolitionist who had helped people escape. And, you know, so this kind of seemed fascinating. And so I found that there was a biography of Tory uh, written by a, a very distant cousin in, in relatively recent years. And there was also a, a kind of memoir of Tory that was put together from his letters and journals and so on after his death. So there was, there were, you know, in effect, two biographies, uh, and you could find quite a bit about uh, Charles Tory. His advocates would say he he deserves much more attention. He probably does than he has gotten, and in particular relative to William Lloyd Garrison, his rival, who is so well known. But 
When I read about Tory, I kept seeing this name of Thomas Smallwood, who was treated essentially as his black sidekick, his black helper almost. And then as I got more deeply into the story, I realized, well, wait a minute. It seems to be Smallwood who's writing these letters. It seems to be Smallwood who is, you know, perforce doing most of the contact with the enslaved people, talking to them about escaping, doing the organizing, because a white person really could not pull that off. Tory disappears to Albany, uh, still very much part of the cause, but not, you know, hands-on organizing escapes after some months, and Smallwood continues on his own. So I, I kind of came to realize that, wait a minute, and also Smallwood's older. Frankly, Smallwood had better judgment. Tory was reckless, even by his own account, a real risk taker, and he paid the price for that. But I kind of came to realize that, that Tory was Smallwood's white sidekick rather than the other way around. And that's when, you know, kind of my plan for the book sort of shifted and Smallwood became the main character because I think that's what the facts uh, very much support. However, Smallwood barely left a mark on history to date. He ends up fleeing to Canada for his life and uh, settling there, and therefore he's a little bit out of the, the picture. Tory fails to credit him with any of these escapes, and Tory essentially takes credit for all the escapes that the two of them had organized together, and also, in effect, for the ones that Smallwood had organized on his own. And Smallwood virtually disappears from history. And, you know, these letters he's written are occasionally picked up by a couple of historians, but are pretty much left out of, of the story of uh, abolitionism, uh, of the battle against slavery, which, you know, I think is truly unfortunate because they are extraordinary. And uh, so he is, you know, left out of history. In fact, in, in 1851, after fleeing to Canada, he decides to write a memoir. Smallwood decides to write a memoir himself. And it's partly, I think, because he is both being left out of history and also some rivals are, are claiming that he uh, exploited the escaping slaves and that he was a bad guy and so on. So he writes this memoir in part to, to leave some history, clear his name, but the memoir itself gets, you know, it's privately printed in Toronto and gets very little circulation. So, you know, he has been a footnote. There are many books on abolitionism that don't mention him at all. There are many books on black abolitionists that don't mention him at all. And so one of the things I hope with this book is that it will get him a, a little measure of the kind of historical justice that he deserves. Indeed. And I wonder if we can sort of um, just do a little bit more there and begin to wrap up with this, this podcast. It'd be remiss not to mention any of his work on the ground, so-called. Can we perhaps leave our listeners with a sense of, of his, his work there? So as Smallwood is organizing these escapes, uh, when you think about it, the partnership of, of Tory and Smallwood is, is quite important. Tory is this well-educated white guy from New England, which is the hotbed of abolitionism, who can raise money. He has contacts in Philadelphia, which was very much a center for abolitionism. He can raise money. He can, you know, sort of plot the larger route. He can find helpers along the way. And, and he did a lot of that. 
Smallwood is is the key guy on the ground in Washington D.C., and he actually operated with a um, with a black partner named Jacob Gibbs uh, in Baltimore. So uh, they are kind of getting word out in a quiet way that they can help people escape. They're in in some cases approaching people and saying, "Do you want to escape?" But at the same time, you know, many of these people whose uh, enslaved people Smallwood is, is uh, you know, helping to escape are his neighbors and acquaintances, white neighbors and acquaintances. And he writes about them using their real names. He writes about the enslaved people escaping using their real names. So this is a really extraordinary um, historical record of, of the escapes. But his whole point is to... Uh, essentially operate in a clandestine fashion, but simultaneously drive the slaveholders crazy. So one of the things he asks is that the Albany newspaper send a copy of any, uh, any of his, uh, you know, any of the, cop- the issues of the newspaper that contain his letters to the slaveholders who are named in them. <laughs> so so uh, in the meantime, he's lurking there. And as a, as a free black man... You know, in the 1840s, he is far from a full-fledged citizen, and indeed, he's sort of like the furniture. White people are moving around, they see black people, but they are often indiscreet in talking in front of them. And it's quite obvious from these letters that he's sort of lurking and taking notes. Uh, in fact, Tory, in, in sort of promoting Smallwood's letters in the newspaper, actually says that that Sam Weller, this pseudonym of Smallwoods, is among you taking notes, he says. And that's exactly the way it comes across. So he's, he's turned this huge disadvantage of being black in America, this sort of invisibility of the black person, even free black people at that time, into a kind of superpower, because he can move around among these people. He talks about overhearing people at the market. He talks about overhearing people at the rail station. So he's moving around these people who know who he is, but are just talking to their white neighbors in front of him. And uh, he makes great use of that in these letters. It's one of the great uh, delights, I think, of the letters. It ultimately does become very dangerous, because, you know, at some point... Even the, even the enslavers who he portrays as a sort of, you know, extremely dumb and clueless, uh, they begin to catch on to the idea that there must be someone who's, who's eavesdropping on them and lurking among them and helping their enslaved people escape. And, and that's when things get hot for Thomas Smallwood. But while it lasts, he makes... Uh, he makes great use of this superpower of being essentially invisible to the white public and, you know, freely moving around them. It, it's a fascinating glimpse into, into Thomas Smallwood's activism and the way he helped so many people and, and his letters. And obviously there's plenty more of that story in your book, uh, Flea North. Um, is there anything else, Scott, that you would like to leave with our listeners uh, as they come to Smallwood's story? By touching heavily on the slave trade, I really appreciate you doing that because many, many, you know, kind of early readers have said, oh, Underground Railroad. And I see it as a two-part, 
two themes, and the map at the front shows people fleeing north and and shipped south, and and that's very much the story. I mean, this is just a footnote, but it's sort of interesting that uh, I sent the book, we sent an early copy to Henry Louis Gates, the Harvard professor who's one of the great chroniclers of uh, race in America and the Underground Railroad and many other phenomena from the slavery period forward. And uh, he was very taken by, he knew about Smallwood. He'd written about Smallwood's memoir in his first book. He didn't know about these letters. And so he actually commissioned me to collect the entire, you know, the complete works of Thomas Smallwood for an edition for Penguin Classics, which will come out in a couple years. So I have put seven of the letters in an appendix of the book, uh, sort of greatest hits, but eventually there will be everything I can find that Smallwood wrote in one volume for future scholars. And hopefully uh, the name Thomas Smallwood will will be better known. You know, there's, there's no memorial to Thomas Smallwood in Washington, D.C., where he did his work. There is no memorial to him in Toronto. In fact, his his grave in Toronto has, you know, sunk long ago into the under the grass, and, and you can't find it. You know basically where it is, but he and his family, uh, there are no markers. And so, you know, hopefully this book will inspire some folks to pay him more attention and give him his due. That was Scott Shane, the author of Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.